0: This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brehm. Today, we explore the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development and its work in education. My guest, Christian Edison, looks at the history of the OECD to show how the international organization has shape shifted over time. From this perspective, the OECD is dynamic and includes far more products and viewpoints than its famed PISA examination.
1: It's always important to remember that the OECD is not just the OECD, you know, it's a complex organization and you do find other sort of sub-programs and initiatives within the OECD that might have different outlook. So it's the question of nuance and, you know, what does the OECD actually say? Because you can find many, many voices from within the OECD. So I think it's necessary to think about, so what are the main voices or the main publications in order to be able to really say what, what the OECD does or thinks?
0: Christian Edison is a professor at the Department of Culture and Learning at Aalborg University in Denmark. He's recently co-edited with Tor Sorensen and Susan Robertson a special issue of the journal Globalization, Societies, and Education, entitled Rereadings of the OECD's Roles in Education, The Becoming of a Global Governing Complex and the Complexities of Governing. Christian Edison, welcome to Fresh Ed.
1: Thank you very much, Will.
0: So can you tell me when the OECD was created?
1: Well, the OECD, as we know, it was created in 1961. Uh, I think it's fair to say that it's very much a Cold War institution, um, because um, it builds on the former uh, organization called the uh, Organization for European Economic Cooperation, which um was working with the distribution of martial aid. And uh, later on, it became very much also a forum for the exchange and coordination between Western liberal democracies, but also capitalist countries. And that's why uh, it's fair to call the OECD a Cold War institution.
0: So it's, it's a group of Western countries or capitalist countries that came together after World War II, but then merged in 1961 into its present formation of the OECD. And and so you you keep calling it a cold war institution. So, you know, in what sense are they promoting sort of western capitalistic values and ideas and institutions in contrast to the the Soviet Union?
1: Yeah, absolutely because of course the marshall aid was uh, was was a key instrument in in you know securing western europe within the western hemisphere and avoiding uh, a communist takeover essentially so in that sense it's a it's a cold war institution but also uh, because at this time there was you know the other big forum in education would be uh, unesco and there you know you had the whole world sitting and you had to, you know, listen to what all the countries in the world had to, to say about various matters. And the OECD, in that sense, was more sort of agile and more sort of where the Western countries could come together. You know, they shared uh, uh, points of view, shared agendas. So the OECD was also a forum where the Western nations could actually coordinate and uh, discuss matters of uh, joint interest before. Uh, engaging with UNESCO and other international fora. So I think that's one of the main reasons why the OECD was created and not just, you know, uh, the OEC wasn't laid to its grave because uh, when the martial aid dried out, you know, why why would you need this organization? But the organization really tried to, you know, find new... uh, new tasks, new purposes, new raison d'etre, and they managed to do so. And then adding Canada and the United States to the organization, you know, then it turned into the OECD. So the U.S. and Canada joined in 1961?
0: Yeah. Oh, right. I didn't realize that. I thought they were involved from the beginning.
1: Well, they were involved, uh, but more sort of in the background. For of course, the Marshall Aid was a was an American uh, undertaking, uh, and you also had the European Productivity Agency, which Regula Bürgi has written about in the uh, in the uh, edited volume that uh, I uh, published in twenty nineteen. And what is important to to understand there in terms of education is that uh the european productivity agency which was part of the oeec was really a forum where um, the us could try to sort of teach western europe the american way of doing business so that they would invite stakeholders to courses and maybe engage in in uh, different kinds of educational uh, activities uh, educate uh, change agents that sort of thing Um, So in that sense, there's this sort of need for like a forum that would, you know, connect the West or be like kind of a glue between the Western nations in opposition to the Eastern Bloc. So that's really why I call it a Cold War institution.
0: It's really quite interesting. And And then presumably these countries would go into forums like UNESCO and vote as a bloc
1: well that yeah i mean to to some extent yes uh, that that that's true because there is this uh, mode of operation within the oecd that the countries you know they come together they discuss problems they identify problems and maybe also solutions of course so uh, in that sense you know there's this uh, element of coordination um yeah
0: In huh. and, and inside the oecd are they are member states voting like how does power work within the OECD or decisions how are decisions sort of made within the OECD
1: yeah well they all have a voice and they they can all uh vote but but uh It's very much a question of uh, who is paying uh, the the funds, right? So, uh, of course, the United States has exerted an enormous influence within the organisation. But we do see also uh, some examples of other nations promoting their national agendas or sort of uh, exporting them to the OECD forum. So we do see uh, examples of other nations also exporting their national agendas into the OECD forum. Um, and then make connections with other countries and uh, taking active part in how to develop uh, policy instruments within the OECD. But certainly, the US was a key a key agent. Yeah.
0: So, when it comes to education, did the you know original organization for European Economic Cooperation include any sort of work in education specifically?
1: So the Sputnik shock in 1957, it sent really shock waves through the Western world and uh, it created a, a sort of an atmosphere of being behind in the space race and also essentially in the uh, competition with the, um, with, the, with the Soviet bloc. And in terms of education, the implication was that there was an increased uh, focus on the production of engineers and technical personnel. And that's why the OEC established a committee for scientific and technical personnel. And it made education planning a key focus area of the organization. Hmm. And that sort of moved into the OECD when that transitioned in 1961.
0: So how did the OECD understand and view and work in education from the 1960s onwards?
1: Well, in the 1960s, the two key programs of the OECD in education was the Mediterranean Regional Project and also the Project on uh, Educational Investment and Planning. And those were the really sort of backbones in the 1960s. And those two programs were very much about education planning and also uh, optimization um the the mediterranean regional project covered the mediterranean countries that were seen as like being a backward region of the oecd so there was an interest there in seeing how education could work to develop those countries and in many ways the mediterranean regional project served as an inspiration for the oecd's later work also with non-member states so in that sense there was this sort of modeling to the world uh, according to like a, a European standard, or at least in this sense, you know, the, the, the experience is drawn from the Mediterranean regional project. Um, it's also maybe important to mention that it was uh, in terms of indicators. It was very much about input indicators at the time. So how much, how much energy, how many resources do you invest in education? rather than output indicators, which is something that belongs later on that they began work on really in the 1980s. But we can we can get back to that later.
0: So in, in this moment in the 1960s, when they're focused a lot on education planning, was the OECD, were they working with the IIEP of UNESCO that focuses on educational planning as well?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the interesting thing is that between unesco and the oecd you know you, you could have uh, staff members who would sort of uh, move back and forth and uh, and that that that's quite interesting but there's also kind of a competition mm. between the two organizations you know they had the headquarters in the same city in paris right so uh, but there was a formal agreement between the two organizations signed in 1963 but I found in the archives a document mentioning that the Secretary General of the OECD at the time, a Dane called Torquil Christensen, would say that you know the collaboration with UNESCO should be strictly at the sort of top level and not something about you know engaging huh. in in concrete programs and that sort of thing. Why do you think that was? Yeah, well, I think there was this element of 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 competition and uh, maybe even also suspicion. Hmm. Uh, towards the other organization. And there's another interesting document within UNESCO saying that um, that it's a life-or-death struggle actually, that the OECD is, is, uh, you know, imitating their work and uh, UNESCO, they don't have any, any place to complain to because, you know, you have, they have the same member state. So they can't really, they can't complain anywhere. So <laughs> it's it's a complicated relation, <laughs> let me just say that. And over time, I think it's been, I wouldn't maybe say like a love-hate relationship, but certainly at, at some periods in time, they have collaborated quite a lot. And at other times, you know, they've been sort of at odds with each other. So, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, right. In, I mean it's it's quite it is quite interesting. So so you said in the 1980s they began to change again some of their focus the OECD. So what what happened in the 1980s where the OECD began to change the way it understood and worked in education development?
1: The main development there are, is the uh, 1983 uh, A Nation at Risk report in the United States that came out during the Reagan administration and um it really uh, positioned American education in a very uh, dire, uh, or it painted a very dire picture of American education. That is, uh, America would essentially lose the Cold War if something wasn't done about education, and there was a need to, or the Americans felt there was a need to develop indicators um, that would allow them to uh, to create knowledge about um, how the education system was faring, essentially. And they saw the OECD as the vehicle for producing those kind of indicators. Mm. So there was some experience in the United States with across states uh, about reporting uh, education data from across states. And some of that, uh, these experiences were taken to the OECD and um, the U- US tried to uh, get the OECD to work with these indicators. Mm. Although there was a lot of suspicion in within the OECD at first uh there were some uh, people in the OECD who really felt that this was an unserious undertaking they know it it was wouldn't be possible to 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 do that kind of global comparative instruments uh, that the Americans were proposing
0: how how did that how did the idea become dominant then because now you know today everyone talks about pisa and the OECD so you know yeah. how in the 1980s there was some suspicion how did How did the the people proposing these ideas of the metrics win the argument?
1: Well, essentially through funding, because the Americans would say that we will uh, stop funding Siri, that is the Center for Educational Research and Innovation. That is the body within the OECD that does educational research. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they said you know we'll we'll draw dry out your funding if 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 you don't uh, you know go along with us on this. Uh, and then they also built some alliances, you know, for instance, with France that would also be interested in like a, you know, a, a republican interest from the, I mean, from the French Republic, like an interest in statistics and and that sort of thing. So they might have different agendas, but even so, they were able to come together um, about this, and that's what uh, Soteria Greg and I have called uh, a boundary space in in. Uh, in an article that's published in the uh, special issue uh, that I co-edited with Susan Robertson and uh, Toris Uh so this boundary space, it meant that you know, it 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 had the sort of appeal of bringing key players in education together, so that they could you know. Um, Join forces in terms of uh, promoting this uh, program on the development of indicators. And that was then the ENES program or the program for uh, International Indicator Program.
0: Hmm. So then how did PISA begin to come about, given this history?
1: Well, um, the ENES program, which is sort of the uh, the stepping stone or the catapult, uh, you might even say, for, for PISA, was launched in 1988, Um, And uh, the first sort of uh, outcome of that program was the education at a glance uh, report, which are now published annually and have been so since 1992. Mm. Um, And the ENES program was really able to to build critical mass, to uh, enroll uh, a lot of member states, OECD member states into different working groups and they sort of laid the groundwork and and developed the technologies and the instruments and had all the discussions about conceptual clarifications and all that stuff that you know would you would have to go through in order to, to reach uh, a level where you could launch something like uh, like PISA.
0: Like so, when did PISA launch?
1: the The first round was in two thousand and uh, was published in in in, in two thousand and one.
0: So the idea is that. PISA started in two thousand and then it, it happens every three years, right? And every yeah. and every round the numbers of countries have been increasing. And and even non member countries to OECD are taking the test.
1: Yes. And that is that is the at least one of the interesting things, because um, talking about global governance and education, then you have to, you know, be able to to say that something is really global. And PISA is actually a very global uh, undertaking.
0: Yeah, I mean, seventy plus countries taking it. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's a huge amount of data being produced, supposedly, you know, cross national and yeah. can produce all these comparisons and. You know, there's a lot of interesting sort of methodological questions that we can go down, but I, I guess I'm more interested in that issue of global governance and global education policy, because it, you know, we you you mentioned a lot of really interesting internal struggles for power, and a, as OECD changed and evolved over time in terms of education, and how a lot of that was tied to the sort of the funding that was was. Um, being given to the OECD by members, and they were sort of driving the agenda internally. But how did OECD gain so much power sort of externally, you know, uh, across the globe? Like, it, because it's not like the World Bank, where they can give out loans to countries and then have these sort of financial arrangements that, that, in a sense, give power. So where does the OECD power come from externally?
1: Yeah. That's also a, a very good question, because uh, it's it's very characteristic that the OECD wields what we call soft governance, right? Um, so that will be data gathering, instrument development, policy evaluation, and uh, of course, enrollment and participation in OECD-led programs. Uh, and actually also the facilitation and creation of a space of multilateral surveillance among members and participating states mm. so that's that's part of of uh, you know the root of the the governance but then there's also the the role of the data itself um uh, because uh, what is very visible in the historical sources is that um building comparative data is really, really uphill, right? So because countries will will count uh, in different ways, they will use different definitions. And so the OECD was really frustrated with that also. So essentially, they decided to sort of take over that part of it. And so so we will be the ones who are actually doing uh, the data collection. You know, of course, it's still the countries, but the OECD would sort of be the compiler and definer of of the data that needed to be uh, collected so um of course you you're familiar also with the with that research uh, agenda about the governing by numbers, mm. right? Yeah. Um, so that's part of it also because education statistics, the data, they offer naturalizations of meaning and orientation and direction to actors. And and these actors are the ones who shape education and it could be decision makers. It could also be practitioners. So it, it creates like a compass for navigating education in that sense. So that's where the, the, the governance really lies. But I think it's important also to mention that it's a, a, in a way also an ideological uh, component here because uh, and that goes to the to the, the concept of development, really, because it's very important to remember that the D in OECD stands for development. So. Uh, and also when i talked about the mediterranean regional program it's fair to say that the OECD's work in education can be viewed as an ideology establishing a, a western hierarchical understanding of development stages categorizing mm-hmm. the world into you know developed countries developing countries and also maybe wrongly developed countries so it's a western image of development and rationalization that sort of uh, engraved into, into the OECD's uh, work here. Hmm.
0: And, that's, and that, that approach to development, that sort of understanding of development or that ideology of development mm. has been consistent despite all the changes to the way in which the OECD has thought about education
1: uh yes more or less i would say um it uh, resembles a bit you know modernization theory where you have to go through some some stages uh in order to 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 reach the the promised land i was almost going to say you know it it can almost be understood in a way in in, in religious terms and mm. there's a really interesting article by jens Beckert that came out last year where he talks about promissory legitimacy which really is this uh, narrative that if you, as a country or an education system, follow our uh, you know recommendations, our programs, we promise then in turn to you that you are on the right path to you know the promised land, essentially.
0: And the promised land is economic growth of certain you know.
1: Yes, and uh, per
0: capita GDP
1: yeah and that 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 you're able to 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 compete well in the global market
0: mm. participate in the knowledge based economy sort of idea yeah yeah right so so the idea is like if you raise your pisa scores mm. you know by a certain amount y- your economy will be you know, higher GDP per capita, you'll be entering a knowledge based economy, you know, not relying on agriculture, that sort of this notion of what development is
1: exactly exactly so and perhaps it's not so surprising that the oecd has this take on education because it is essentially an economic uh, organization for for development right so mm. so i mean it would perhaps be even more surprising if it didn't have that approach <laughs> to 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 education but of course it's always important to remember that the oecd is not just the oecd you know it's a complex organization and you do find uh, other sort of sub programs and initiatives within the oecd that might have different outlooks for instance the one called governing complex education systems where you will find sort of very sort of uh, uh, balanced conclusions in terms of accountability but then again you know you find some of the main publications like education at a glance and some of the the pisa reports where you know the statements there are a bit sort of more black and white uh, so mm. it's the question of nuance and, you know, what does the OECD actually say? Because you can find many, many voices from within the OECD. So I think it's necessary to think about, so what are the main voices or the main publications in order to be able to really say what, what the OECD does or thinks or, you know, plans? Beyond
0: Beyond publications, does the OECD advise governments? Like, are there OECD officials that are... You know, working inside non-member states to tell them how they can interpret the data and what policies and programs would be best, you know, to implement.
1: Well, that's a, a tricky question. I mean, to to some extent, but normally the way it works is that uh, a, a government would ask the OECD to to evaluate its education system, and then mm-hmm. the uh, OECD will will will. Go, compile a team of inspectors uh, and those can you know be academics or researchers from you know universities that are sort of team up and then go um, to that country's education system and will you know write a report about it um, and um, sometimes these reports uh, might also very much reflect the uh, the views of, of this uh, inspection team hmm. Um For instance, um, in in Denmark, uh, there was a big uh, debate about national tests back in 2006. And uh, there was uh, an inspection by the OECD in 2004, uh, calling for a sort of strengthening of the evaluation culture of the public school system. But what the the head of that uh, inspection team, that was Peter Mortimore, he was very clear in saying, do not, do not produce league tables uh, on your national test data. But there were people within the Ministry of Education, high ranking people who thought it would be a good idea to have like a national testing system. So there's also this sort of um, sometimes disjuncture and sometimes alignment between what the OECD says, what the OECD inspection teams say and what you know, national authorities say, or high level officials or politicians. So, so, you know, uh, talking about policy making or policy reform, it becomes really um, quite, quite, um, quite complicated and you can't just, you know, go from A to B. You know, there are a lot of uh, a lot of uh, stops on the road to a policy reform, right?
0: yeah and there's a lot of you know global symmetry and there's a lot of conversations and interactions with people and in other institutions that sort of influence how decisions are are made and and it might not be so direct as you said from A to b mm. so you know the o e c d is known in the world of education you know Pisa is the big product, but you've also brought up this education at a glance these other sort of country reports, these inspection teams, these other sort of reports and documents that probably aren't produced regularly um, and show very diverse opinions and Mm. perhaps conflicting opinions from some of the main reports coming out of the OECD. So it's a real diversity of ideas in a sense or products, let's say, coming out of the OECD. Are there other big education products that the OECD has or is, is promoting at this point?
1: Uh Well, uh, there are, of course, other uh, international large-scale assessments. Uh, but but I think if we, if we look at PISA, it's a really interesting case because it's also a site of product development. So you get all this kind of uh, offspring programs or what you would call them, for instance, like PISA-D, PISA for development, something that's sort of tailored for the developing countries because the OECD had to realize that, you know, having all this you know standardization or flat flat world ontology or whatever you would call it and so that Pisa actually creates doesn't really always make so much sense for uh, developing countries or the global South uh, so they had to create this sort of sub program and then but that actually in a way goes against the whole ideology uh, of Pisa because the whole ideology of PISA is that you know it's it's a, like a globalization ideology that you need the same kind of competences in Buenos Aires as you do in London and in Copenhagen or in Beijing. So mm. it's in that sense it's about globalization. So making this kind of distinction is uh, actually contrary to to the whole idea of PISA. So now they're working on how can they actually get PISA D data back into the big fold of, of, uh, of PISA, but you also have something like PISA for you, a program that's uh, targeting individual teachers where they can now be uh, PISA certified teachers. So the OECD provides the learning materials. It's an online course. So you get a little, uh, a little emblem or something on your shirt saying PISA certified teacher. <laughs> and then uh, should, that should sort of uh, heighten the prospect of your employability or something like that.
0: And is that for teachers of any
1: grade? Uh, I think that normally just you know uh, compulsory schooling. Um. Yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. And you have PISA for schools also, uh, a program where the that allows the OECD to interact directly with individual schools, and individual schools can then benchmark up against OECD standards. You know, completely circumventing national authorities, uh, and that's often sort of uh, you know funded also by, uh, for instance. Um, uh, Bill and uh, Belinda Gates Foundation, you know, so um, mm. uh, so they get the kind of private money. And then you have PISA for five-year-olds also, uh, <laughs> which is also known as Baby PISA. It's associated with the International Early Learning and Child Well-Being Study. So you have a whole range of sort of offspring programs within the from, springing from the old PISA tree. And I think it's fair to say that... Um, it's an expression of the OECD trying to stay relevant, mm. trying to stay in the game, trying to stay to, to you know re- remain a provider of sought after solutions with decision makers. So it's definitely not a standstill uh, within the OECD. It's always there to develop and you know expand. And even PISA is changing also in its content, of course. So,
0: so in what ways is the PISA test changing in its content?
1: Well. Uh, the oecd is uh, is is trying to add some more sort of uh, you know soft skills you know it started you know with uh, reading and arithmetic and science and uh, mm. over the years you know additional skills have been added for instance like financial literacy that was added in 2015 you know the part is that the oecd in its own view is the organisation guaranteeing better policies for better lives And that was a new slogan that was adopted in 2011. So in the sense that they can sort of argue that what they're doing is creating better policies for better lives, you know, uh, it allows the OECD to move also from a perspective centered very much on economic conditions to a sort of much broader sense to a more sort of all encompassing perspective that allows the OECD to engage with, with any agenda, really. And when you visit the OECD, like I did when I did my archival work there, you know, once you pass through security and you enter into the lobby, you get all these big screens with all the discussions that take place in the plenary rooms. And, you know, it really gives you the feeling that you are now standing in the epicenter of globalization, <laughs> I would say, because it's all sorts of issues that are being discussed within the OECD. So it connects very, very broadly hmm. uh with so many topics. So uh in education you now have the OECD Learning Framework work twenty thirty that was launched in twenty eighteen. Here you have something like student well being and happiness, uh also included. So, you know, it, it, it's it's a moving target the OECD.
0: They they're very dynamic and they sort of change with the times as well and, and the times in every location in the world potentially.
1: Yeah. So, what, where, where
0: to next for the OECD?
1: Do you think we do see some signs of of PISA fatigue, hmm. uh, which is a challenge, of course, to the OECD. Um, and you see that, for instance, in uh, research articles questioning um, the cost of participating in PISA, um, and it's 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 a very like a negotiable thing for each country? How much do you pay in order to be part of PISA? And so just, you know, the mere uh, idea of raising that question, is it really relevant, is, is you know, dangerous to the OECD. And I think part of the, the explanation for all these uh, offspring products uh, must be found in, in that reason. Mm. Uh, and you can also raise the question, what will happen when Andreas Sleicher retires? You know, he, as an as an actor, has been very, very uh, prolific, energetic, and and done uh, so much work uh, on the promotion of of Pisa. Can he be replaced? I mean, that's also an issue that that might have some you know bearing for what the OECD will be uh, in uh, tomorrow. But looking at it historically, I think we can see that you know the uh, positions of 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 actors in education is sort of reshuffled over time. So international organizations are reshuffling, uh, but now we also have the edu businesses, edtech businesses, different partnerships. So I think in order to answer your question about what will happen with the OECD into tomorrow, I think the best way to look at that is to explore what kind of partnerships are the OECD engaged in, what kind of uh, edu businesses. What kind of uh, countries, organizations are you know, mm. um, you know, chipping in or you know, connecting with the OECD, and you see the OECD, for instance, partnering a lot with the uh, with uh, Harvard University, but also the American Education Research Association. So there's also like in a almost like a Bourgeoisian sense, you know, the sense about capital. The symbolic capital of these different organizations, and can they sort of uh, get some, uh, uh, you know, authority by partnering? It can be like a win-win situation for different organizations to enter into partnership with each other, and you know. So I think that would be one way of uh, exploring. You know, if you want, if you're keen to know about the trajectory of the OECD in the future.
0: Well, Christian Edenson, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed today. It's really a pleasure to talk, and I guess we'll have to keep reading the tea leaves about OECD in the
1: future. Thank you very much, Will. I agree.
0: Christian Edenson is a professor at Alberg University. He's co-edited the latest special issue of the journal Globalization, Societies, and Education. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Lushi Guaba, Fatih Aktas, Jong Cho, Obafemi Ogunleye, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, and Phyllis Che Mensah. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Freshhead is an independently-run podcast without advertisements, and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the Shock Dev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.